Good morning, family. How are you doing today? You doing okay? Well, welcome. My name is Josh. I think I know most of you, but if I haven't met you yet, it's so good to see you today. And for those of you joining us online, welcome to Clear Creek. It is so good to be with you this morning. We're in this series called How We Got Here. And today we're looking at how it all and where it all went wrong. And I want to start with this question. Have you ever done something like that? Now, I don't mean have you ever maybe made a paint mess, but have you ever just made a mess at all? Anyone in here willing to admit that you've ever maybe made a mess? It can be a physical mess. Maybe if you're like me, part of your car is a wreck right now. Maybe it's your room. Maybe it's, you know, your office. There's a mess somewhere And maybe for others of us, if we're being real honest, it's not that we would say there's a mess of stuff, but rather there's a mess of life. Anyone in here willing to admit that you've ever done something that you wish you could go back and bring like the magic erase marker to the moment of your life? I know I sure have. And this is a moment where we find ourselves in the text where we're about to see where everything kind of went off the rails Because God created something beautiful and good, and then things went bad. And I don't have to tell you, you've watched the news, you've been outside, you have heard the conversations, you and I both know that our world is a mess, and not just right now, but it's been a mess forever. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? The world has been a mess forever practically, but it didn't start this way, did it? We've been going through this series called How We Got Here, and it begins way back when in what we are calling the undated past, where this good God walks onto the scene and he says, I want to share my love, so I'm going to create these kids. I'm going to call them humans, people. And he begins, like every good parent, to get the nursery set for the arrival of his children. We call this nursery the universe, planet Earth. And everything is just right. In fact, it was made just for you and me. God says, I'm going to hang the earth at just the right distance from the sun so that it's just warm enough and not too cold, but not so hot that they'll burn. And I know days like today where it's 40-something or 50-something, you have to pull out that sweater you haven't worn all year. You go, yes, I feel sort of the range. We're in that range. And we're going to be in this place, not only that it's just the right distance from the sun, but it's going to have the right mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, so we have water, and we're going to have good air, and God is going to provide for us. He gets the whole space set. He says, now it's time. And he begins to craft humanity. We talked about this last week. If you didn't hear it, I invite you, please go back and listen because there's so much there that you need to hear about why you are here and your value. And God created not only you and me, but he then says, I want you to have perfect relationships with everyone. In fact, our four core relationships, all of them were perfect. Our relationship with God was absolutely perfect. Adam, the first face he sees when he opens his eyes is that of his daddy God, who has just finished breathing life out of himself into humanity, into Adam. In fact, you say, why would God do this? Why would God care? God is a relational God. In fact, one word, it's not in your notes, but if you want to jot this down, the one word of Genesis that I want you to know is that it's all about relationship. 
Every bit of this has been about God saying, I want to know you and for you to know me. In fact, we get a hint that God is a relational God, even in the name of God here in chapter 1 and 2 and then in chapter 3 as well. In chapter 1, God is referred to as Elohim. Everyone say Elohim. Elohim. It's just the word God, and it means this big, powerful being who can create. But how many of us know that you can be powerful without ever being personal? He is a powerful God in Genesis 1, but then in Genesis chapter 2, he begins to be referred to not simply as Elohim, but Adonai Elohim. Adonai was the Hebrew's substitute for the unspoken name of God, Yahweh. We don't even know if that's the right way to say it because the Hebrews would never say the word Yahweh. They would not even write it. So they would take the word Yahweh out and put the word Adonai in as a replacement word. So whenever you see in your Bible where it says the Lord God and Lord is uppercase, that's the word Adonai. And that word is the personal, relational name of God. So even here in the beginning, with the name of God, we're getting a picture that in the beginning, it's all perfect. There's a relationship perfectly between God and humanity. We had perfect relationship with God, but we also had perfect relationship with nature. We had a safe space that was satisfying, that was joyful. You remember the story. God puts Adam into, not just on earth, but in this safe little place called Eden. It was to be the prototype that God set up And God put Adam there, and he's going to say, Adam, I want you to do in the rest of the world what I have done here. You cultivate it. You care for it. You subdue it. You rule over it. Make the whole world beautiful, just like I've made Eden beautiful. By the way, the name Eden means abundance. And he puts him in a place of abundance where there's all sorts of food to eat. Clothing is optional. And in fact, not only is it safe and trees are producing fruit ridiculously and bushes and plants are just everywhere and they are partnering with Adam to do the job that he's been called to do. By the way, how cool would it be if tomorrow when you went to your job or you logged on, if whatever your job is, it actually did its work for you? That's the picture of creation. And God brings the animals. They don't come and they don't bite Adam. They don't run from him. Rather, they come to him willingly. And God says, now you name all the animals. I love this picture. Adam begins to name them. And he's like, that's a hippopotamus. And God goes, that's a great name. That is an alligator. And God's like, oh, that's an awesome name. And then he says, oh, and that's going to be a dog. And God's like, Wait, that's my name backwards. Okay, okay, that's fine. And then Adam is naming a few more and then runs across this little four-legged creature and he goes, oh, and that is a cat. And God goes, that's a great... I didn't make that. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. But it's perfect relationship with God and with nature. Cat lovers, I love you too. I'm just joking. But it's perfect with God and with nature. But not just with God and nature, but with other people as well. There were no fights There was no bickering. There was no friction. In fact, Adam is alone. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from his side. He creates woman. And you got to imagine that Adam, he goes to sleep alone. He wakes up though, and there next to him is a genetically pure, drop dead, gorgeous woman who is naked, who's made for him. How many of us know that must have been the most productive nap in the history of the world? And, and, and so what does Adam do? Well, did you know that in the Hebrew, 
What is said next is the first poetic coupling in all of Scripture. It's a poem. He sings over her. At last, my love has come along. That's what he's doing here. In fact, look at the text. Next slide. At last, the man exclaimed, this is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. In fact, there's a little playfulness in the Hebrew. She will be called Isha because I am Ish. I'm going to name her after me. It's the perfect world in every way. But not only is it perfect with God and with nature and with others, it's perfect with ourselves. Do you notice this next line? There's no shame. There's no guilt. In verse 25 of chapter 2, notice what it says. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. I was reading a psychology magazine that said one of the most common nightmares people have is that they are out in public naked. You don't realize it at first. You're walking around and then you look down and go, I need a fig leaf because I'm naked. There's this great fear of being exposed, but in the beginning, there was no shame with ourselves. There was no sense of guilt. There was no sense of hiding. And this was not simply a matter of we don't cover ourselves physically. It is that there is no secrets. There is no jockeying for position. There was no, what did he really mean by that? What does she really think? How does he really feel? It was the perfect place. And so the question is this morning, how did it all go wrong? Well, that brings us to Genesis chapter 3. This is how we got here. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Pause there. This is one of those areas in scripture that trips people up. They say, the serpent, what is that? Let's just talk. The serpent is a symbol for what character, what presence, what thing? Satan, the devil. We learn this later in scripture where we're told that it was the devil who in the beginning tempted Adam and Eve. Key phrase there, it was the devil who tempted. God did not do the tempting. And sometimes people say, well, this, this devil, this snake, did he look like a snake or did he have arms and legs? Did he have wings? Did he have a long tongue? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us all those details. Well, well, did all the animals talk? After all, this is a talking snake. Was that normal? Real quick, this is not a Disney cartoon. The animals do not talk. Scholars are very clear to say, notice it does not say a snake, but it says the serpent. There's a distinction being made here that evil has now entered into the scene, that there is a being. We believe as Christians that there is a God, but there are also demons and a devil. Can I get a yes from anyone here? We believe that this world, the reason it is the way it is, is because yes, God created all things good, but there is an enemy who has entered the garden, and is putting the words of lies in the ears of man. And so something's about to happen here. So the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree 
in the garden. Remember, there are trees everywhere, but there's that one in the middle called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God placed there and said, you can have anything, but don't eat this. And some people say, well, what? Did God, you know, want to have the market cornered on apples? Did God like his pear tree? What, what was so special about this tree? Why did he do this? Here's why. God did not put the tree in there to keep them from good things. God put the tree in there for love. You say, love? How? They had to have a choice to love God. If you do not have a choice to love someone, if you cannot leave, then you cannot love. And he says, if you love me, just choose me over this. Tim Keller makes an interesting point. He says that notice God does not give them a list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't say, do not kill, do not steal, do not want what your neighbor has. That comes later because we messed up here. Rather, in the beginning, it's not a list of don'ts. It is love me more. Because it's all about relationship. And so he says, you must, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman says this, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Goes on, verse three, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. By the way, gentlemen, a lot of times we like to poke at Eve because she's the one who did it. Notice that Adam was with her while all this was going on. I'm just going to make a little side comment here, and yes, this is going to be meddling, but hey, you're at church. Here's the reality. Men, if you are married, God has given you a good gift. Can I get a uh uh-huh from the men? You have a good gift from God, and many of you women, you lead beautifully in your homes, and you partner with your husband in beautiful ways. You are a spiritual companion, and you care, and you share, you do great. But men, it is our responsibility to nurture and love our wives, to care for them. Yes, that means also to protect them. And if needed, to lovingly pull them away from things that would harm or destroy them. This is not sexist. This is the responsibility of men to lay down their lives. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, to lovingly lay down our lives for the benefit of our wives. So, enough meddling. We'll continue here. Goes on, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. What a scratchy choice, fig leaves. Have you ever touched fig leaf? This is a bad choice. Sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8, so sad. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's what happens. Are you ready? Adam and Eve believed a lie. And because they believed a lie, everything was broken. Write this down. Sin always involves believing a lie. 
Sin always involves believing a lie. In fact, there are five lives that the enemy shares in this passage. And here's why I'm pointing this out to you. Because these are the same lies that the enemy has been using throughout human history. Throughout history, man and woman have been given the choice, love God or love something else. And the enemy's choice for getting you and I to step away from relationship with God is a lie. Let's walk through these very quickly. The very first lie that the enemy uses is, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Notice this. There's a couple of assaults that are going on here, aren't there? The first one, of course, is just, it sounds very innocent, but there's the assault on God himself. It's the question of, and this is the one we hear often today, is, did you hear that right? Are you sure about that? Sometimes it happens within the church, but often it's happening more in a secular culture where it's the question of, God? Really? God? You believe that there is a man in the sky with a big white beard and a flowing white dress and he's telling you what to do. Is that really what you're going to hold on to? This is the assault on is there a God? Did God really say that? Did God really? And sometimes maybe it's not even did God really say it, but did you hear him right? Are you really going to stake all that you have on this, this one is an assault on is there a God? It's an assault on did you understand it correctly? And by the way, do you notice there's almost a mocking tone to it? There's a scoffing. <laughs> did God really say that? Really? It breaks my heart the number of people I know who have stepped into brokenness simply by the scoffing questions of others. Do not allow the scoffing questions of another to pull you away from the truth of who God is. The first lie is, did God really say that? Here's the second lie that is implied here. It is the twisting of Scripture. Did you see what he said here? He said, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree? Did you see that? Any tree. Now, the woman starts to correct it, but she goes off the rails as well. She says, no, 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 no. We're allowed to eat from every tree except for one. See, do you notice that the enemy begins this lie not by ignoring the word of God, but simply by twisting it, saying more than the scriptures say or less than the scripture says? Did God really say that you can't eat from anything at all? How many times have we twisted Scripture intentionally or unintentionally and we've missed out on the beautiful freedom of God because of it? I think about so many things growing up. I remember some of you will laugh at this. Others of you will know exactly where I'm coming from. Uh, growing up, one of the rules in our house was there was no, um, there was no mixed bathing. Okay, i got to explain this to you. Mixed bathing, where I grew up was a euphemism for swimming, boys and girls together. How many of you heard anyone ever call it mixed bathing? Anyone else in here? Man, you're my people, okay? And I remember hearing that growing up going, mixed bathing? That is just weird. Why would I ever want to have a bath with someone else? That's just strange. I just want to go to the pool. But what happened, and I love my mom and daddy, and, and, and they are my best friends. We were with them over the weekend. We did a little camp out at their house in my old tree house. It was great. But here's the reality. 
My mom and daddy had understood something that we are to live pure lives and they began to create additional rules that were bigger than what scripture actually said. Now let me be very clear. There will be for some of us certain things that are greater temptations than others. And when you find something that's a greater temptation for you, it is wisdom that says you take a bigger step away from that temptation. But that is different than saying, thus saith the Lord. Friends, we have got to be careful not to twist the scriptures of God to say more than it says or less than it says. Oh, love is just love. No, 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 no. God has assigned and defined what love is, and it's between a man and a woman for life. That is the way God made things to be. And we don't get to redefine things just because a culture says we don't like the way it has been defined. So he says, did God really say that? Second one is twisting scripture, but what about this third one here? Put this one up. There are no consequences. There are no consequences. Have you ever heard the argument, no one will ever know? That's another way of saying, there are no consequences. If someone doesn't hear about it, you're okay. By the way, this is one of the biggest ones that is robbing our children of their childhood. For years, our kids were taught that there are consequences to things, that what you do matters. A friend of mine shared this illustration. I thought it was great. He said for years, students knew that they were assigned a different day of the week in school to bring either the coal or just get the fire started for School. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How in the olden days you had a schoolhouse, you had a fireplace in the schoolhouse, and one of the kids was responsible for it. Well, now, and the result was if Johnny forgot to get there early, everyone was cold because of Johnny. There were consequences. But we live in a world that is, as best it can do, trying to remove the consequences for every action out there. And not only that, if you want to, you can find someone else to blame as a result. The third one is there are no consequences, and the consequence is there are a lot of broken people covered in paint now going, what about this one? God's keeping good things from you. God's keeping good things from you. It's the idea of God doesn't love you enough to give you the really good stuff. He's holding the cookies on a shelf just above your reach. If he really loved you, he'd give you more. If he really liked you, he'd give you what you want. This is the idea that says not only is God out there and God can do good things, but God chooses not to do good things for you. And the idea of this one is simply this. God's goodness is one step beyond where he lets you go. That the good stuff is just beyond. It's the idea that's saying that God's goodness is just one more step beyond this stage. But how many of us know that God sets up things, parameters, barriers, not because he does not like us, not because he hates us, not because he's an unjust, ungracious, not good God, but he sets up barriers, parameters, so we don't take that final step that will lead to a great fall. That God says, I have great things for you. By the way, most theologians agree that had Adam and Eve experienced this temptation and come through it with different results, trusting God, not the lies, that over time, 
God would have expanded their knowledge. God would have expanded their understanding. God would have given them what they wanted. And maybe even there would have come a day where he'd said, you know, I see that you trust me. Enjoy the tree. But they'll never know because they never trusted him. God is keeping good things from you. By the way, what they wanted was wisdom, knowledge, experience, something good, something tasty. She saw that the fruit was tasty. She goes, I want that. Here's the incredible thing with the devil. And listen to me, please. He often promises to give you things that he has no ability to actually give you. Did you hear that? The enemy will often promise to give you something saying, God's holding out, but I will give you what he is holding out from you. Any one of us, any one of us who's lived over more than six weeks, we know the pain of believing that lie. See, the reality is God is the giver of good gifts. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, every good gift comes from God. So all the devil has left is to try to warp what God has already given. Interesting, isn't it, that God spoke and created everything, right? How does the devil warp everything? He speaks. See, he can't even use something unique. He simply takes what God has done to create and warps it to destroy. Here's the fifth and final one that he uses. You can be your own God. Man, I wish, I wish, I wish that I had a magic wand where I could just kind of go, ding, everything's the way I like it. The Burger King world of Josh, have it your way right away. That this is the way I wish things were. You can be your own God. Adam and Eve, you don't need God. You will do this if you just take it. If you just reach out, you will be wise like God. You will know things. You just, it's going to be amazing. You don't need that God. By the way, for centuries, we've tried to be our own gods. How's that working out for the human race? Anyone think that we're better off today because we tried to do it ourselves? These are the lies that he began telling, and he has not come up with new ones because these work very, very well today. See, sin always involves believing a lie. Sin always involves believing a lie. Sin always involves believing a lie about God, about ourselves, about others. I can be God. You can be God. He's not God. And the world is broken as a result of it. In fact, not only is part of the world broken, the whole world has been broken because of this. Very first thing we see, because of what sin did, next slide, everything has been broken. Lies break everything. First, you notice that this relationship with God, he is face-to-face with man and woman. The very first thing they do is what? They hide. They run away from him. They try to get away, which, by the way, is kind of a silly thing to do. All-seeing, all-knowing God, I'm going to go hide behind a bush. I imagine it's almost like the children. Have you ever seen this? Little kids, when you play hide-and-go-seek, I love this with like little toddlers. You start to count one, two, three, ready or not, here I come. And you turn around and standing in the middle of the room is that toddler doing this. (laughs) You can't see me because I can't see you. It's so silly to hide from God. But isn't it interesting that the very first response is to get away from the presence of infinite goodness and glory because all of a sudden things are broken. There's so much going on here. Let me try to give you a little bit more context. See, you will not understand the depth of what's happening here if you don't understand the context. I'm going to blow up one of our views of what's going on here. Are you ready? 
For most of us, we were raised with this idea that when it says this phrase, they heard the sound of the Lord God, that it was almost like giant feet just kind of through the trees, coming along, crunching the leaves. And we get this picture then of God, like a doddering old grandpa. Kids, kids, where are you? Oh, where did I put them? Did I, did, where did I leave them? Are you over here? But this is not the image that we get from this text. He has not lost his kids, although he does call out to them. He is not losing them. There's something more going on. There's a scholar by the name of Meredith Klein who's done a lot of very interesting research into this passage and others like it. And what he says is very, very interesting. He makes the point that throughout Scripture, every time the physical presence of God, we call this a theophany, whenever the physical presence of God comes into the space in the Old Testament and meets with humans, there is a sound associated. Yes, there's light. Yes, there's glory. Yes, there is this majesty, but there's almost always a sound, this sound with God. So when the Lord God gives the people of Israel the law in Deuteronomy, there is a rumble on the mountain. In 2 Samuel, when the Israelites are doing battle and they need the assistance of the Lord, when he shows up for battle, we are told that there's a rustling over the trees and they know that the presence of God is here. There is a sound of God's presence and it's not just here. It is in the prophecies of Joel and Zechariah. It is in the vision of Ezekiel that there is this sound. Meredith Klein puts it this way. He says, when you study this, it is arrestingly loud. It is likened to the crescendo of an ocean, like a storm. It is the rumbling roar of an earthquake. It is the noise of war. It is the trumpeting of signal horns and the din of battle. It is the thunder of the storm chariot of the warlord. Meredith Klein says, if you want to read Genesis 3 correctly, you play it at fortissimo. What Adam and Eve heard, he says, was frighteningly loud. It was not soft and mellow. It was this frighteningly loud sound. It was the shattering thunder of God's advent in judgment. He's saying that the music swelled, the Lord entered, and what once was a pleasant sound became this rumble of terror because they knew what has once been good and close was now destroyed. God steps onto the scene and says, I am here to pronounce judgment. That's what's happening here. That's the context when they heard the sound. Is it any wonder when we do what is wrong, we want to hide? Because something in us knows I have just offended the one who made everything. I have a friend who was a ranger in the army, just the elite fighting force. He has two boys. He's tender and sweet with them, but folks, he's not the man you want to meet on the battlefield. Adam and Eve's daddy God was now the one who said, what have you done? Now he does say, where are you? There's a wooing there. There's a coaxing out, but there will be judgment. 
That's why everything's broken family. And it's not just with God, but you notice these next pieces, it's with nature. It's with others. It's with ourselves. We fear nature. We fear viruses. We fear animals. We fear natural disasters. We blame other people for what we've done wrong. Adam points to Eve. Eve points to the snake. We blame. We give focus to others, never taking it on ourselves like pain-covered little kids. We point to our little brother and say, he did it. And then we feel naked and say, I'm shameful. Guilt is saying, I have done something wrong. Shame says, something is now wrong with me. And everything's broken. And so God walks into this scene and he says, where are you guys? Come on, Adam, come on. You need to understand that God's mercy is actually God's judgment. It would have been a horrible thing for God to let Man and woman rot in their sin for eternity without ever dying. Can you imagine a world of the walking dead, never dying, always living in brokenness? And this is why in that moment judgment came. And no, God did not atomize them. He did not torch earth. But they do start to die. Spiritually, they begin to die, don't they? Their relationships are now broken. Nature runs from them. The ground that once would partner with Adam in work now fights him. This is why men, this is why women, you like your job but find it so frustrating. It's all broken. So God says, okay, there's judgment, but I'm going to fix it as well. And I want to end on a note of hope because, folks, we live in a world that is broken, but there is still hope. Are you ready for it? In verse 14, we see the first part. The Lord speaks to the serpent and notice he says, because you have done this, you will eat dust. Next slide. You will eat dust. Have you ever heard a kid say to another kid, eat my dust is a phrase of defeat saying, I win, you lose. The Lord God, in verse 14, begins this when he says to the enemy, you are defeated. It looks like you've won, and yes, there's a curse coursing through the bloodstream of humanity now. There's a consequence to sin. This is why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to fight for something. They do it naturally. We are all broken, but now God is saying in the very beginning, while the pieces are still on the floor, while the paint's smeared across creation, he says, you are going to lose. And he says, you want to know how? Verse 15, this is the first messianic prophecy. He says, I will put enmity. There will be fighting between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he, and he, and he will crush your head. Church, this is the first moment in all of Scripture where God prophesies Jesus will come and Jesus will defeat evil. Yes, you'll strike his heel. Jesus will be killed but you're going to crush his head. By the way, church, here's a fun fact. Jesus Christ, thousands of years later, is drug out onto a hill outside of Jerusalem and hung between two thieves. The name of that hill is called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. He's going to crush you at the place of the skull. 
I will deal with evil, God says. I cannot let it go. There will come a day. It will all be dealt with. There's coursing of pain because of this, but I will deal with it, he says. And then he deals not only with the problem of evil, church, he's now going to deal with the consequences of it. See, listen, sin always involves believing a lie. So the truth is what sets us free. And he says, here's the truth. You've messed it up, but one is coming who will fix it all, and I'm going to take care of your shame. Notice in verse 21, this final passage, it says, the Lord God, the Lord God, oh look, the one who was relational before the fall remains relational even today. Do not run from God. He loves you. He cares for you. I don't care what you've done. He says, I love you. I care for you. I forgive you. Turn to me. Stop hiding. I'll fix this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Isn't it interesting? Adam and Eve, first thing they do, they cover themselves because they feel shame. But what they use is this fig leaf that over time will wither, crumble, fall apart, thus exposing their guilt and shame over and over and over. Some of us are tired of trying to cover up the guilt that we have because we can't cover it up. We're tired of trying to pretend everything's all right because we can't. We feel good for a little while, but then cracks begin to form and we realize we are still naked and ashamed. You notice, though, it is not man and woman who create a permanent covering. It is the Lord, but it is by making a garment of skin. How do you get a skin? An animal has to die. Do you see even now the Lord God says the death of one is the only thing that can cover your shame? Is it in any wonder then that Christ on the cross was stripped naked, exposed completely? He was exposed so that our shame could be covered. See, this is how it all began, but folks, this is not how it all has to end. Jesus can deal with the shame that every person has.